Good morning. This is lesson 20 in our study in the book of Hebrews, and we're focusing on chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. I initially call this a tense situation, and it is that, but I've also added the, uh, the secondary part, the parlor or the den. When uh, That may puzzle you for a minute, but when, when Jeanette and I came from the north down to the south, we encountered the parlor, and, and that was something that we had not ever seen before, really. And, and In fact, it mystified us. We would walk into houses, and, and you would see a den, and that's where people lived, it seemed, the TV set and whatever. And, and there was this other room, a sort of special room, and, and it was called the parlor, and you had sort of fancy furniture, but it seemed like nobody was ever there. And, and in, in our house, when, when we first uh, saw it, there was a wall, naturally, between the parlor and the den, and the first thing we did as northerners was take it out. <laughs> it was sort of the rending of the veil, so to speak, between the inner and the outer sanctums. And, uh, and we noticed that, that, for instance, the floor in the, in the den was linoleum and the floor in the parlor was carpet. And, and I also noticed that there were people who, when they bought a house, oftentimes they, they bought the maximum amount of house they could. And so the parlor was empty because they couldn't afford the furniture for it. But it was sort of that sacred place. And, and so it seemed to me, as I was looking at this text, that the analogy may be uh, there, or at least from a man's point of view it is, that, that, that the outer portion of the tabernacle is the, the den where everything happens. <laughs> and then there's this inner portion that nobody seems to ever go to, uh, that inner sanctum that's the parlor. And uh, perhaps that analogy will help us to, to think our way through the, uh, the text. When we come to these chapters um, that we're dealing with, we're really at the heart and the core of the message of the book of Hebrews. The author's been leading us here. He's been bringing us to the point of, of setting down these truths. And then in 10, 19 and following, he's going to really bring those home in terms of their application. But we're really at the core and the heart of what the author is saying to us, I believe. And we see several themes that converge as we, as we come upon this text. One is the theme of man's need, man's sin. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, we looked at this in terms of the Israelites, but we know it is true for us, and that is we're sinners and we need help. And, and, and something's got to save us apart from ourselves and our feeble efforts to please God. Jesus Christ has been introduced early on as the high priest, and that has been played out in greater and greater detail. But he is the great high priest who has come in his incarnation to bridge the gap between men and God. He has taken on uh, sinless humanity and added that to his uh, undiminished deity so that he might identify with men, might atone for the sins of men, and might be a mediator who is sympathetic with the plight of men and their need. And then you have the theme of the new covenant that is superior to the old Mosaic covenant. And through that new covenant, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are going to be fulfilled 
And Christ as a high priest is the mediator of that new superior covenant which makes the old obsolete. And, uh, and the new covenant then is, uh, it, which is cited for us from Jeremiah chapter 31 and chapter 8, is now shown to be fulfilled in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the text, as we have it, as I understand it, can be broken down into three uh, major sections. Verses 1 through 5 is sort of the furniture section. I'm I'm not sure whether you see it that way or not, but it's the furnishings of the the, uh, tabernacle that is looked at. And primarily in terms of the furnishings, the primary furnishings with respect to the outer chamber and the inner chamber or holy of holies. Then in verses 6 through 10, you have the function of what took place in the tabernacle. And in particular, what was the lesson that the tabernacle was to teach us? What did the Holy Spirit want us to understand by the way in which those outer and inner rooms of the tabernacle are related to each other? And, and then the superior priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the minister of the new covenant, and its effect upon Christians. What does the, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does it do in the life and in the heart of the Christian, which is so significant to him drawing near to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? I put a couple of websites on there uh, because I have some pictures. I was terrified. I thought maybe they weren't going to work right. And John uh, uh, put me, my mind at rest. They actually will show on the screen and not go off to the sides or some terrible things behind my back. And uh, those websites will give you a couple of places to look at some of the furnishings of the, uh, of the temp with the tabernacle. So let's look first of all at the uh, tabernacle and the courtyard as you see it uh, in verses 1 through 5. And you'll see that first frame there with the, uh, with the courtyard and the, the gate by which the one who was making a sacrifice would enter. You see the uh, brazen altar where the sacrifice would be offered up and you see the laver there for, for cleansing. Inside this area uh, of, of this courtyard is as close as the layman would ever get uh, to, to the holy place. Uh, the rest was really restricted to the priest, the outer chamber to the, to the priest, and then only in a rotational order, and the, uh, the inner chamber would be accessible only to the, the high priest. So there is... Uh, a limited amount of access for the average believer. Uh, boundaries are established. Now let's look at the uh, tabernacle, its outer and its inner uh, divisions as we see it on the, the screen. You've got the uh, outer division with the lampstand, the candlestick, the table that has the uh, sacred uh, showbread, and then in the inner chamber, You have uh, in the Holy of Holies the altar of incense. I'm I'm putting a a sort of an asterisk in my mind because there's some question by the scholars as to whether that altar of incense went on the the, the curtain side from the outer chamber or whether it's on the inner chamber. The writer to Hebrews represents it as being on uh, on the inner chamber. The Ark of the Covenant, which contained, remember, that jar, a golden jar that had the manna, 
that they had preserved and also the rod that, that budded that proved that Aaron was the legitimate uh, priestly line. And then you had the, uh, the cherubim, the, the ark and the uh, cherubim, which uh, overshadowed as well. So let's look at the furnishings of the, of the outer tabernacle, as you see on your, your slide. The golden candlestick, there's a representation for you. And also, the next slide is the table of the sacred bread or the showbread. Remember, it is that, so we say, day-old bread that David and his men partook of when he was fleeing from Saul. It would be uh, some of that showbread that was available usually uh, only for the uh, priests. Now let's look at the uh, at the inner room, the Holy of Holies, and there you see the uh, the altar of incense as our author portrays it, and then the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which has the cherubim that that have their wings that join together in some way, the poles that go through so it can be uh, carried, uh, and then the the items that are inside, and that. The cover for that ark would be the mercy seat where the blood would be uh, spilt or, or, or uh, uh, scattered, sprayed about on that, uh, sprinkled about for the Day of Atonement. Now, let's think about what the author says. I was really fascinated by the commentaries on this because it, it, this is a point at which one could take each of those items of furniture and you could go into the symbolic uh, significance of those. And there is symbolic significance to each one of those. But you have to let the author be the one who gives you your clues. And, and therefore, when you look at the end of verse 5, he says, These are things about which we cannot now speak in detail. So in reading the commentaries, you get some of them who they've gone all off and they've talked about the significance of each one of those. And yet when you look at the, at the text itself, he says, I don't want to go there. Now, why would that be? Why, with all the significance of those elements of furniture in the outer and the inner part of, of the tabernacle, why would he not go there? Well, let me give you some suggestions. One, it was this glorious... Um, a furnishing. I mean, you had these gold, uh, golden uh, elements that were there. It was a part of those glorious works of art that made the old seem superior to the new. I mean, when you think about worship and, and you're meeting in a New Testament church, you may well be meeting in a house. You don't have all of the of the of the razzle dazzle. Certainly, in those days, of the temple or of all these implements. When you look back at the tabernacle and all these beautiful furnishings, you'd say, wow, that is so great. It seems to me that the author is saying, I don't want to go there. You're already tempted with that. I don't need to spend any more time on something you're not to go back to. And then he's emphasizing the substance rather than the shadow. In other words, these have been shadows or pictures of things to come. And his focus is on that fulfillment, not on the shadows of that. I don't see uh, Jake uh, Abraham here this morning, but I thought of him as an illustration. Jake has married Serene. And, and for now, he is limited, you might say, like the high priest. He only goes like once a year, or, you know, he's only made a trip or two to see his wife uh, from afar. And, and Lord willing, 
she's going to be here, I think, by Christmas. That would, that would be his wish. But it, it seems to me that it's like having a picture of Serene. It, it's a foretaste of things to come. But, but wouldn't it be foolish for Jake when his wife gets here? Wouldn't it be foolish for him to sit off by himself somewhere and look at her picture when he could be with her? And, and so, you know, the picture loses its value when the reality is there. And, and that's the way I understand the author to be dealing with this uh, tabernacle furnishings is the reality is here. That's what he wants to talk about, not the, not the shadow, not at this point at least. And if I understand it, he's looking not so much at the furniture as he is at the function of these two rooms. Because somehow in the functioning of these two chambers, the outer and the inner, there is a lesson for us to learn that, that is important. Or, as I would say, the relationship between the den and the parlor. What is there for us to learn? So having dealt with those things, and I think just calling them to mind, because these Hebrews would have understood and, and the picture would have easily and quickly come to them about these elements. Um, now he moves to their function in verses 6 through 10. The outer tent, or what we might call the den, was a beehive of priestly activity. I mean, isn't that the way you see it? When you think about the functioning of the temple, people are bringing their sacrifices, and all of this is taking place, this priestly activity is taking place within the confines of that courtyard and that outer a holy place, but not within the Holy of Holies. That's going to be a much more restricted access. I was thinking about the, the description of Zechariah in, in, in uh, the early uh, part of Luke. Remember where it talks about him and his appointed time of duty? Not only was this a, a, a beehive of activity, but it was, not, it was not like they had a full-time crew of a little crew of priests who did this all the time. You had a large number of priests, and, and you would have a, a, a selection of those priests who would be drawn out, so to speak, who would be drafted for their duty for a particular period of time. And that's what Zacharias was doing when, when the angel appeared to him. So what I'm saying is, even though there was a lot of activity in that outer chamber, it was not by the same people, and it certainly was not by the layman, as it were, of Israel. They were restricted to the courtyard when they had a sacrifice. Other than that, they were outside the confines of the entire courtyard. It was not a place, you might say, it was not a, a friendly place for the average Israelite unless they had a sacrifice to offer. And even then, they stayed within the confines of, of that courtyard. So a great deal of priestly activity is taking place in the, in the outer chamber of the uh, tabernacle. The inner uh, sanctuary, or what we would call, I would call the parlor, was obviously much more restrictive, much less activity. You didn't worry about anybody wearing the carpet out in the Holy of Holies because, you know, you only went in there a priest, the high priest, once a year after he had made a sacrifice for himself and then a sacrifice for the people. It is a very, very uh, quiet, inactive place by and large. 
and you certainly don't have a lot of traffic that's going in there. And I think that's part of what the author is trying to say. The high priest only, once a year, with blood sacrifices. And notice he makes the point for sins of ignorance, that is, not willful sins. In the Old Testament, the provision of sacrifices was a provision for sins that were not willful, and the ones that were, that's a whole other case. Now, I don't know about you folks, but, but for me, I would have had trouble as an Israelite because I'd have been thinking about my sins and I'd have said to myself, was that sin willful or not? Hey, a lot hung on that decision, didn't it? If it was a willful sin, I got lots of trouble because that sacrifice isn't going to do me a lick of good, which I think plays into this whole theme of having a good conscience. I think it would have been very difficult to have a good conscience under the Old Testament law, wondering just what degree my sin was willful or not, whether or not that sacrifice could actually apply to what I had done. Here are the lessons that we're to learn in verses 8 through 10. The system restricted access to God. I mean, don't you just see boundaries every which way? You see the fence, so to speak, the fence around the courtyard, and so the one who would offer the sacrifice had to come through that gate. But then you had the that inner, the outer chamber that only priests could enter, and then you had the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could enter once a year. All of that said, keep out. We went to uh, to to buy a hamburger uh, at at a place uh, yesterday, and when we walked in the door, it, it turned out that we sort of walked in the back door without knowing it, and and the first door we looked at it says no admittance, just for for authorized personnel only, and it gives you that kind of you know unwelcome feeling, but in a sense that was that was what you had within that tabernacle, no admittance except for authorized personnel. Priests only in the outer chamber, the high priest in the inner chamber once a a year. So it it produced a restriction in terms of access to God. The way it functioned, you would not have, the average person would not have access to the Holy of Holies. And as long as the system remained in place, as long as that uh, not only the, the, the tabernacle itself, but the whole sacrificial system, as long as it remained as it was, there was no intimate access for the average believer uh, or even for anybody else for that matter. There was no cleansing. This is the key, I think, uh, to me of this, uh, this entire section. There was no cleansing of conscience, which was essential in order to have True worship, the word in the various translations, some will say service, some will say worship, some might even be bold enough to say service of worship like you have in Romans chapter 12. But but the point was, one did not feel free to enter into the presence of God in worship or service with an unclean conscience. And the old covenant system just didn't do a good job, it didn't do an adequate job, it couldn't take away sin so as to make one's conscience clean and therefore feel free to enter boldly into the the presence of God. So no cleansing of conscience under the old covenant system. And he says priestly ministry was virtually uh, external. That is, it, it it, it dealt with outward things. 
But it did not deal with the heart, which is what Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, deals with. It's a new heart that God gives us under the new covenant through the work of Christ. Now, I was thinking about that just in terms of examples. And my mind went back to Matthew chapter 8. Remember where our Lord Jesus healed the leper? And he says to the leper, after he's been cleansed, go and show yourself to the priest. Now, if you look back in, in, uh, in Leviticus chapter 14, the priest was there in part to diagnose and therefore to deal with people in terms of their external cleanliness or lack of it. If the priest declared you to be unclean, then you did not have the kind of access that other people did. You could not have contact, and you often had to go outside the camp, or you had to yell, unclean, unclean, in the case of of leprosy. So that illustrates, I think, what the priest did. The priest could pronounce whether somebody was cleansed of their leprosy, but that's external. The priest could not say, you have a clean heart. And you have a clear conscience before God. He's dealing with those external things. And that was a problem with the way in which the old system worked. So we come to that third section in verses 11 through 14. Now we turn to the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who is the one who administers better promises, those better promises of the new covenant. uh, And therefore, through the shedding of his blood, there is not only the forgiveness of sins, there is the cleansing of the conscience, which frees one to come into access uh, with God boldly and freely and without fear or reservation. Verse 11, Christ is our high priest of good things to come. And what are those good things to come? Well, if you go back to chapter 8 and verse 6, it seems to me it's those better promises, the promises of the new covenant that are going to come about as a result of the person and the work of Christ. I would say some of those are realized in the present and some of those yet will be fulfilled in the context of Jeremiah 31, will be fulfilled at the return of our Lord the second time. He passed through... We see in verse 11, he passed through a greater and more perfect tent. Now, you've got to go back, I think, to chapter 4 and verse 14, and it's where it says that he passed through the heavens. You'll also notice in Hebrews chapter 10 that it talks about the veil is the veil of our Lord's flesh. So what it's saying here is when our Lord entered in, he did not enter in like a high priest into that uh, holy of holies, which was a picture of things to come, he passed through a greater tent, that is the tent of the heavens. And he now enters into the presence of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, and that is where he conducts his ministry in an ongoing, ever-present way, not in this once a year for this short period of time that would be true of the priest. He entered the most holy place, we see in verse 12, and again we see it in verse 24. So that atonement is achieved achieved by the the shed blood of our Lord Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, and it is an atonement that is vastly superior to the blood, uh, that atonement which is brought about through the blood of animals. So it is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, not the blood of animals, 
It is a sacrifice that is once for all and therefore does not need to be continually made. These things are going to be played out later uh, in the chapter and in chapter 10 as well. Now, here's, I think, where we really get to the core. This purifies our consciences from dead works to worship and serve the living God. It purifies our conscience. Now, as I understand it, you've got two basic perspectives for the problem between men and God. In the old four spiritual laws, remember, it it portrays man as being separated from God by his sin. I see that in two different ways. One is that God is holy and righteous and he cannot look upon sin or sinners. That's why God says to Moses in Exodus after they have worshipped the golden calf, I'm not going with you. I'll send my angel, but I'm not going with you because if I were that close to you, you'd be dead. You guys are bad boys. And, 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 and I'm a holy God, and it is not safe for you. And that's why God set all these boundaries. The boundary around Mount Sinai. Don't come any closer, because evil men cannot approach the presence of a holy God. Now, that's the perspective from, from God's point of view, and it's absolutely true. There's no question about it. But the other side is, from if you want to call it that, from a psychological point of view or whatever, from my point of view... If I have within me the guilt of my sin, if I have within me an uncertainty, was my sin actually a sin that was willful or a sin that was not, then I don't have a clear conscience. Frankly, I want to avoid God. And so the question is not just whether God will accept me. The question is, do I have a clear conscience that I have been accepted by God and I may freely and boldly enter into his presence. That's what chapter 10 is going to say. We now, because we have the access that we have and we have a cleansed conscience if we are believers in Jesus Christ, now we may approach into his presence boldly and confidently because we don't have that sense of inadequacy, that sense of guilt, that sense of wonder. Am I really, should I really be with him? Have you ever had somebody that you offended and, 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 and you see them, uh, whether it's at a party or somewhere, and you just your inclination is just not to get too cozy, and so you just kind of work around the other way, whatever, when you know the relationship may be a little shaky? That's, that's what this is talking about, I think, is one's conscience being defiled. Now, it says uh, our conscience are purified from dead works. Well, back in chapter 6... It talked about repentance from dead works. And, and I would suspect that maybe two things are, uh, could be involved in that. One is, when you look at Romans chapter 6, and it talks about those who pursue the path of sin are on that path which leads to death. The wages of sin is death. So you could talk about those sinful works which lead to death. That might be one dimension of it. But it seems to me there's also those works that were so typical within Judaism that were seemingly religious works, but they still didn't produce life. I'm thinking in particular Philippians chapter 3. Paul is saying, hey, look, you know, he says, beware of this circumcision which, which puts all of the emphasis on externals and rituals and so on. And he says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I, I, was, I was as religious as you could get. 
as serving God, I thought. But, but he says, all of those things, when I came to understand and to trust in Christ, I realized they were just garden fertilizer. They didn't produce anything. They were dead works. So he's saying, those things that we do that are the works of our hands, whether they are outward rebellion or whether they're our best efforts to please God, but independent of God, those things that lead to death, our conscience is cleansed with regard to those things because our salvation doesn't rest upon our works. It rests upon the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk about how that all wraps up for us. Verses 1 through 5, the furnishings of the temple, the outer uh, tabernacle, the outer and the, the inner rooms. And it's not really about those furnishings so much as those rooms itself, but that system did not provide a way in which men could draw near in intimate fellowship with God. It was a restrictive system and All it said to us is, this system has to go if men are to draw near to God in intimacy, uh, in their worship and their service. It's going to have to happen some other way. My 1940 Ford pickup. I haven't talked to you about that lately. I was at a Bible study yesterday, and this this, uh, young woman had to bring her her Firebird for me to see. A 250 six-cylinder engine, Jim. Uh, man, I didn't think they put a six-cylinder engine in those cars. But anyway, she wanted me to drive it and see it. She has insurance, which only allows her to drive it, in a sense, for show purposes. Uh, you, you don't drive it to work and you don't do it. It's just, it's, it's just that special thing. Her father gave it to her on her 16th birthday. She drove it for years and then she sold it to her brother. And he had it for years and then she bought it back because it had all those special memories. And, and it reminds me that my, my, uh, my Firebird is a 1940 Ford pickup. I've told you about it before. But we needed a pickup uh, in this little resort that my folks ran. We needed a pickup because we had to haul firewood and garbage. And, and, and we had an old 1936 Ford that had the door was off and, and it wouldn't start and it was just a problem. So we went down to Portland, Oregon, my dad and I, hitchhiked down there and bought a 1940 Ford it had been dropped in the front, 900 tires on the back, and the first overhead valve V8 engine that Ford made was in that car. And they had to weld a dual exhaust system. Three or four rear ends were thrown out of that thing after we sold it because it had too much, too much torque and too much horsepower. It had pin stripping along the sides and scallops in the front. I'm telling you, uh, I was not 16 yet, but I drove it. But, but it, was, it was one of those things, a young man's heart just, oh, this was it. But, and I've, I've told the story before. My mother said, either the truck goes or I goes. Fortunately, my father made that decision. But, but the point was, it was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing, but it was worthless for what we needed it. It would not, we would not defile it by hauling firewood or garbage. My dad got a Dodge pickup. I threw the garbage at that. That was easy, but not this Ford. It was beautiful, but it was useless. And, and it seems to me that when you look at the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, that's what you have to say. It was beautiful. I mean, you had golden objects that had been fashioned by craftsmen that, that was just out of this world. They were, they were one of the, you know, they would have been one of the wonders of the world in terms of their craftsmanship. But they were useless in terms of cleansing men's conscience 
so that they could boldly come in access before God. So the problem of drawing near to God, which is the theme of Hebrews, is a twofold problem. One is God must be satisfied. He must be propitiated. His anger must be satisfied. And that is accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ. But the other is we must come to terms uh, with our own guilt and we must sense that we have been cleansed so that we are free to enter into, in, into his presence. And that's where this whole thing of, of a good conscience comes up. It, the word conscience, if you look in, in your concordance, I think is found once in the Old Testament. It's where David's conscience smote him when he had uh, done something, cut off a piece of, of Saul's robe. You don't find it there, but you do find it in the New. And I think it's very much a part of what the New Covenant is about. I will give them a new heart, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. It's one that is now free in terms of its access uh, to God. In Acts 23, Paul stands before the council, the Sanhedrin, and he says to them, I come to you with a good conscience. And they go absolutely ballistic. And, and you know, that's really, that's really significant to me because I think what it's saying is it was not possible under the old covenant. It was not possible for one to have a, a good conscience under that covenant. Because you never knew fully, you know, that you had, you knew that your sins had not been fully atoned for. They had only been set aside for another year. So you had that sense of, of anxiety, of incompletion. It's not over. When Jesus says it is finished, it's really over. But for an Old Testament, uh, Jew under the Old Covenant, there is not that sense. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says something very significant. He's talking now about Gentiles. And he basically says that those Gentiles whose hearts have been changed, their conscience now becomes the the, the barometer and their conscience, if it's directed by God, can lead them to do the things that the law requires or to stay away from those things the law forbids. So when God writes the law in their hearts... They have a sense of what is right and what is wrong before God because that is what the new covenant is all about. I put a number of other texts down there, but my point is that the good conscience is a critical element. And you will notice that those who go astray into false teaching and lead others astray are those who have a defiled conscience. They are those whose conscience has been corrupted and they cannot see and function as they ought. And it's interesting to me to think about that then in the light of what we read in Revelation chapter 12 about Satan as the accuser. I had always tended to think of this when it says he is the accuser of our brethren. I had always tended to think about this in a sort of anti-mediatorial role where he's up in heaven saying, see, there's definitely messed up again. He'd just focus on me and he'd be full-time employed. But I think that it works another way. I think that Satan actually accuses us to us. I think that he wants to remove from us a conscience that is free and undefiled. He would love to see us somehow have a hesitance. And and as I've thought about our culture and our society and the things that hinder people's Christian walk, and I'm talking now about believers, it seems to me that, that oftentimes it is because there is a fear or a guilt 
that has come about because our consciences are somehow clouded with wonder. Are we really right with God? I did this terrible thing people may not know about, or was I guilty in this particular thing? And that conscience plays a critical role. Anyway, you remember in Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah, the high priest, is being accused by Satan. And there it is uh, that the Lord says, you put the, you know, pipe down Satan. And, and he says, put the clean clothes on him and whatever. He's now free to function as a priest because he's been cleansed. Satan's accusations are invalid. The work of atonement's been done. So that our motivation needs to be a motivation of grace, not guilt. We need to focus on the cross. And, and I was thinking about this in terms of, of just where we are right now. One particular service. We have all kinds of need in our church, and there are all kinds of needs outside of our church for service. But the worst thing we could do is play upon people's sense of guilt. What we want is people whose conscience is free, who are rejoicing in their access to God, and therefore they function out of grace, not out of guilt. But sometimes we, we dangle people over that pit of guilt and, and we want to make them feel badly enough to do something. Giving is one of the classics. We'll just make people feel so guilty they'll finally just reach for that wallet. That is a terrible, terrible thing to do in the light of what this text is telling us. We ought to operate out of gratitude for grace in what Christ has done for us. Finally, I want to talk to you just for a minute about Christmas. I was thinking about the way in which a defiled conscience that's a result of sin keeps men from fellowship with God. And my first thought was Adam. Isn't it interesting? It was not God who walked away from Adam. It was Adam and Eve who hid in the garden behind some leaves because they had a sense of guilt. They withdrew themselves from him. Now, God's going to restrict them from the, from, the, from the garden and the tree of life because if they ate that, they would live forever in their sinful condition. That's for their good. But it was men that withdrew from God. It was not God, in that sense, that withdrew from them. In fact, it was God who sought them out. He is the seeking God. So our Lord says in Luke, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's his joy. That's his delight, is to seek out guilty sinners, cleanse them of their sins, be satisfied with the punishment that has been meted out on Christ, and for them now, with clear and clean consciences, to approach him boldly and to enter into, shall we say, the parlor. Only I would say the parlor becomes the den. The parlor now is the place of God's presence, but it's where everybody feels free to go. It's where everybody feels their feet aren't dirty. They won't mess up the carpet. They have been cleansed by God through the work of Christ, and they are free to have access. Is that not what Jesus came to do? The coming of Christ in, at Christmas, the incarnation as it's spelled out in the book of Hebrews, that is God's act of seeking men. Men who were deaf to his word found that Jesus had come to speak to men for God. Men who were dead in their sins found that Jesus Christ took on humanity so he could die for those sins and now as a mediator can mediate between them and God, giving them free access 
to God because of the work of the cross. So, out of the parlor, so to speak, into the den, tear down the wall. That's what the tearing down of the veil did. It said, free access for all who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Freedom from guilt, freedom from fear, freedom to serve. That's what I believe the message of Hebrews is about. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and for his atoning work. Thank you that the tabernacle, while it was a picture of good things to come, could not produce what only the shed blood of Jesus could do. If there is anyone here who has never trusted in him personally, acknowledge their sin and embrace the work of the Lord Jesus on their behalf. May they trust in him today. And those of us who have trusted in him, may we know with assurance that not only our sins have been forgiven, that your anger towards sin has been pacified, has been, has been satisfied, but that we now have a good conscience, free from guilt and fear, to approach you and to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.